Welcome to West Church. We're so thankful you've joined us today. Whether you're joining us in person or virtually, we're excited to come together to praise, worship, and receive God's glory. If this is your first time with us, we'd like to give you a very special welcome. If you're returning, thanks for joining us again. We appreciate it, and we appreciate you. Now, let's prepare to be inspired and encouraged as we enter into worship. We are back this week in our series in Romans chapter 8. We had Mark Fee with us last week, but we're back in Romans chapter 8. If God is for us is our theme. And we've seen things like there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we've talked several weeks about the ministry of the Spirit, almost like a telecommercial which says, and that's not all, and that's not all, and that's not all. And we've talked about the ministry of the Spirit within our lives, and we've talked about um, groaning. Uh, we talked two weeks ago about groaning and, and, and how the whole creation is groaning, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God, and how we ourselves groan, waiting for the final stage of our adoption, our resurrection bodies, and um, that God is with us in that groaning, and there are things that he, he wants, that He's doing and things that He wants to teach us. And so you can go back on our YouTube page and listen to those. If you haven't listed them yet, I really encourage you to do that. Today, we're going to talk about what happens when we pray, and just look at the first half of the passage that we read this morning. So we're going to be thinking about what happens when we pray. I've mentioned before that I get a chuckle out of a scene from a movie entitled Bruce Almighty. It's, it's a comedy, it's kooky, it's irreverent. In the movie, Bruce, played by Jim Carrey, the comedian, is mad at God because things haven't been going the way that he wants in his life, and he pulls his car over to the side of the road, and he shouts at God because he's mad at God. And God decides to, to, to make a deal with Bruce. Bruce is going to get to be God for a day in order to teach Bruce a lesson. So Bruce steps into the shoes of God. And one of the scenes in the movie he walks up to this old-fashioned computer terminal. And the computer terminal is a prayer terminal where all the prayers of people come in for God to answer them. And so he sits down at the terminal and he says, oh, Melissa's praying for this? Yes. And Rick is praying for this? Yes. And, and Dave is praying for this? Yes. But as he's clicking yes to the different prayer requests, more are coming in faster than he can answer them. So at the first answer, there's 100 prayer requests. At the second answer, there's 1,000 prayer requests. At the third answer, there's 10,000 prayer requests, and he's pulling his hair out. How is he ever going to answer all these prayers? Well, there's a button. Yes to all. And he pushes the button, yes to all. And the next scene in the movie is all the big cities in the world with gridlock and chaos, and the whole world comes to a screeching halt because all the competing prayers of all the people were answered yes at the same time. 
It's so stupid. <laughs> but it does touch on a perception that people have about prayer. The perception is that God is up there, He has all the power, and we're powerless, and He's just taking His time, picking and choosing the prayers that He wants to give us and which ones He doesn't. Perhaps you've heard this phrase, God answers every prayer, yes, no, or wait. Now that's a nice little turn of phrase, but I suggest to you that that answer is completely cold. God is not sitting at some computer terminal answering prayers, yes, no, or wait. He's not that distant. He's not that cold. And He's not that uncaring. There is way more to it than that. There's way more going on than that. And that's what we're going to see today. And there are three things phases are three movements of what God is doing in prayer according to Paul's description here in Romans chapter 8. And they are these. Struggling leads to praying. That's the movement one. Struggling leads to praying. Movement two, praying leads to the Spirit. Praying leads to the Spirit. And movement three, the Spirit leads to trust. The Spirit leads to trust. So will you join me on this journey from struggling that leads us to praying, from praying that leads us to the Spirit, and from the Spirit that leads us to trust? Look with me, please, if you would, at verse 26. He says there, Likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. When we are groaning, when we are struggling, when we are weak, what do we do? We pray. And the problem is we don't even know always how to pray. Have you ever experienced that? Sometimes we don't know how to pray. We, we know we want God's help. We know that we want God to do something. We know that, that something needs to change, but we're not exactly sure what that looks like. And is that okay? Yes, that is absolutely okay. As a matter of fact, it's more than okay. It's good and right and true according to this passage. The opposite problem is when we think we know exactly what God should do. So that that's all we pray for and that's all we ask for and that's the way we approach God. I want this and I want this and I want this and I want this. And in James chapter 4, he talks about the problem of this kind of praying, verses 2 through 4. He says, you desire and you do not have so you murder, you covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel, you do not have because you do not ask, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. There's nothing wrong with praying, God, would you please do this, and naming your petition. But what he says needs to be corrected is when all of our passions and all of our individual nitpicky desires we put in front of God and in front of His plan for us. 
You know, there's nothing wrong with praying, God, what about my wayward child? Or a spouse, what about my cheating partner? Or a friend praying for their friend who's starting to experiment with drugs? Or a person praying for someone that they love for healing? Or a person struggling in poverty praying for a better job? What is wrong with those prayers? They're not selfish, they are genuine. But ultimately, should God not answer, we have to pause and ask ourselves, why? Why does God want me to pray when He doesn't seem to want to give me what I'm praying for? I'm asking Him for good things that He alone is able to do. God, why are you so far from my cries for help? And this is the dilemma of unanswered prayer. And Paul tells us there's more than what we see with our eyes going on when we are praying these petitions because struggling leads to praying, but praying leads to the Spirit. That's what we see in the second half of verse 26. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought. But, but, the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Paul says that the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings. Do you remember that war word before in Romans chapter 8? Who was groaning? The creation was groaning, awaiting for redemption, and we're groaning, awaiting for the final phases of redemption. We are living in this heartbreaking world, suffering hardship, praying our hearts out to God, hoping for a better future, and what's God doing while we're groaning and praying our hearts out to Him? The Holy Spirit is groaning with us. <laughs> the Spirit is groaning while we groan. God the Holy Spirit is with us. He's not coldly sitting at a computer terminal doing yeses and noes and waits from above. He is with us in our groaning. He enters into our groaning. He groans with us. He groans for us. Our groaning matters to Him. Our pain matters to Him. Our longing matters to Him. Even if God doesn't give us a simple yes to our deepest, most heartfelt request, He is not cold. He is not distant. He is close and He is involved. He is with us in our groaning as God has never been with people in any other period in the history of redemption. He is inside us and He is with us. You know, when a, when, you, when a friend of yours that you care about shares something difficult with you, you don't just say, oh, thanks so much for sharing. What do you do? You sit down next to them. You take their hand. You empathize with them. You cry. You groan. You listen. You nod. You encourage. You follow up. Guess what? 
God's the inventor of all of those emotions. He has them himself. And the Holy Spirit is the one who even enriches our emotions to enter into somebody else's feelings and experience. We're told that he intercedes for us with wordless groans. He doesn't even have to use words. He can intuit our hearts. He can intuit our thoughts. He can intuit our feelings and our longings. The Holy Spirit joins our groans to His groans. And from deep within, He knows our pain, He feels our pain, He empathizes with our pain. Like an internal best friend, the Spirit is there, a heart that is so for us and so with us that He wants absolutely nothing less than God's very best for us. He can listen as you pour out your heart like nobody else can. You ever read the Psalms? How the writers cry out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from the cries of my heart? Look at all those wicked people out there getting rich and beating down everybody else, and I, I, I feel like I want to give up. That's the, that's the emotion and all the feelings of the Psalms. Think about Job as he cried out and his friends just beat on him and beat on him and beat on him. And he's like, where are you, God? Why don't you come to my, my justification? And that's the Hebrew Bible. That's the Old Testament. Now we're under Jesus in which there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now we have the Spirit. Now we can cry out to God with words of honesty and frustration and pain and know beyond the shadow of a doubt that the Spirit is groaning with us as we are groaning and crying out. God is big enough to handle your sorrow, your pain, your anger, your frustration. He's not distant. He is within. He's not forgetful. He doesn't turn His back. He doesn't change his mind is like, oh, I really don't love him that much. He's all in. He hears every prayer and cares about us more than anybody else in all of creation. Verse 27 says, And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. He who knows hearts, that's the Father, also knows the mind of the Spirit. We have here God the Father and God the Spirit intimately connected from all of eternity together with the Son forever in love relationship with one another from before all time Three persons, yet one God. Their hearts are not separate, but intertwined. The Spirit not only knows our hearts, but the heart of the Father knows our hearts. And the Spirit intercedes. He goes between. He translates our prayers to the heart of the Father. I've mentioned before that I traveled to Russia a couple of times to teach in a Bible school for church leaders there back in the 90s, a long time ago. Each time that I went, I was there for two weeks at a time, and I taught for eight hours a day, Monday through Friday, and then I would also preach a few times on Sundays. 
And all of this teaching and all of this preaching was done through a translator. A translator is a kind of intercessor. They are a language go-between, between you and someone who doesn't speak your language. I would speak a sentence in English, and then they would translate my words into Russian. And when I sat at a table, or when I rode in the car, or when I was sitting in church listening to somebody else speaking, my translator would sit right there next to me, literally knee to knee, whispering in my ear what was being said so I could understand and enter in. And so I became extremely close and attached to the various translators that worked with me for all that time. Some of my translators were Christians, some of them weren't. They had a whole bunch of them that would kind of handle all the hours that we were together. And I could literally feel the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian translator. The Christian translator not only was able to translate my words from English to Russian, but they were sympathetic with and able to feel and understand my passion and intuit how I was feeling, and they could imitate my feelings as well as my words when they translated. I could feel an even deeper connection with a Christian translator in just those few days that I was there. The Holy Spirit is like our prayer translator. We do not know how to pray as we ought. We do not know how to pray or what to pray sometimes. So we speak our human language or maybe we just groan. And the Spirit groans with us and can feel our feelings as well as know our words and our thoughts and speak. He speaks God language to the Father for us. The Spirit knows the will of God. He knows just what we need when we ask. And He knows better than we know what God wants for us. And the Spirit communicates our hearts to God, and the heart of God communicates the Spirit communicates our hearts to God and communicates our hearts to His. God is so intimately involved in our lives, His sons and His daughters, that He's not at some computer terminal. He's in here and He's in the heavens. He's in our hearts and He's on the throne. And when we pray, heaven and earth embrace one another, and earth comes to heaven, and heaven comes to earth. We just finished praying, on earth as it is in heaven. That's what happens when we pray. Earth comes to heaven. That's what prayer does between us and God. It brings heaven to earth, not making everything fine and dandy so that they just like the way it works out. Heaven responds every time with divine love and compassion for our groaning so that struggling leads us to prayer and prayer leads us to the Spirit. And the Spirit leads us to faith, to trust. Verse 28, most of you know this by heart, you don't even have to look down. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to, our, to His purpose. When God hears our prayers... He is working, always working, never not working, constantly working, 
each detail of our lives. The good and the bad, the hard and the delightful, the painful and the joyful, the sad and the celebratory, the agonizing and the ecstatic, the moments of our lives all add up to one long answer to our prayers for good. God's intention towards us is never, ever bad. God does no evil whatsoever and isn't even capable of conceiving of it within himself. Even the forces of this world are mysteriously subservient to God's reign and rule over all of creation. And God's overall intention towards us throughout all that we face, according to this verse, is always for our good. Having said that, this verse is not a club that God uses to beat us with and say, now you miserable humans down there, just believe that I'm working everything together for your good and shut up. I'm in control, so you just learn to put up with me. That is not what this verse means. In the days of Paul, there was a philosophy called Stoicism. This is the definition, okay? And then we'll unpack the definition for just a few minutes. Stoicism went like this. This school taught that virtue, the highest good, is based on knowledge, that the wise live in harmony with divine reason, also identified as fate or providence, the wise live in harmony with divine reason, fate, or providence that governs nature and are indifferent to the vicissitudes of fortune and to pleasure and to pain. Okay, let's unpack that. Stoicism says that fate and providence governs nature. And fate or providence is indifferent towards you. And the height of virtue was to learn how to be indifferent to pleasure or pain. You were to learn to ignore or deny your feelings and just trust fate. You had to try to shut down your emotions and just accept reality. There was no compassion, there was no empathy, there was no acknowledgement of sorrow or pain, just cold-hearted mind-over-matter acceptance. Desire was the enemy, and victory was the elimination of desire, dulling our desire, so that one stopped being a victim of circumstances or feelings. Do you understand Stoicism? Sometimes Christians have taken a stoical stance on life. They read this verse and interpret it to mean that we just have to coldly and analytically accept that God is in control, no sense in crying over spilt milk, doesn't really matter whether we pray or don't pray, God is just going to do what He wants to do anyway, feelings are bad, the mind is good, 
mind over feelings. God doesn't want us to feel. He just wants us to think and do good. That is not Christianity. It's not our God. It's not the Holy Spirit. That is Stoicism masquerading as Christianity. If you believe that your feelings and your desires and your thoughts don't matter to God and that God just wants you to shut all that stuff down and bury it deep down inside, may I respectfully say to you that the devil has you right exactly where he wants you. Romans 8.28 is not a bat that God uses to beat us into submission to his will. It is a statement of faith that is embraced by a child of God who has the Spirit groaning within us and knows that the Spirit bears our groans willingly to the throne of the Father in heaven. And our human spirits are knit to the heart of God and we believe that He is hearing and answering us with love, trust, and anticipation. Sometimes believing this verse is hard. God knows that it's hard. It is a statement of faith that acknowledges all that we feel, all that we desire, and all that we know. Faith doesn't cancel feelings. It doesn't crush desire. It doesn't eliminate knowledge. Faith takes our entire human experience and brings it to God with love and childlike submission. Because we believe that God is for us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Spirit dwells within us and groans within us. And because we believe all this, we bow our knees in worship and praise and adoration because God is love and God is gracious and God is good and God is mighty and He is God King over all. God, my God, is doing for me because He knows me through and through. That is what made Jesus so beautiful and attractive. He believed this about his father and he lived like this in relationship with his father and with other people. And having been loved by Jesus, we are learning to love as he loved. And this is the mystery and the glory of holiness God in. More on this verse next week. So what we have, have we seen so far? Struggling leads us to praying. 
praying leads us to the Spirit, and the Spirit leads us to trust. Do you see it? This is what happens when we pray. God is not sitting behind a computer terminal somewhere hitting a button that says either yes, no, or wait. He is joined to us. And we are joined to Him by faith. He answers and we trust Him. We are united by faith to the eternal, tri-personal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you have a prayer need or a response to God's Word today, whether you're a first-time guest, a second-time guest, or an all-time guest, you can do so with the Let's Connect card. Just drop it in the offering plate or give it to somebody in the lobby. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much for doing that. Do you know God this way? It is possible, entirely possible, for people to do, be churchgoers for their entire life and not know God this way. But that can change. It can change right here. It can change right now. And praying is how it all begins. When we come to Him and, and ask Him to come into our lives, to forgive us for our sins and believe that Jesus died in our place, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and ask His Spirit to make Himself alive to us as we read and study and listen and, and think about and ponder and meditate and read back to ourselves God's Word. God delights, delights in those whose hearts are open to Him. 